We want to welcome you to the Love First podcast. We are thankful if you are returning, you know that this is part two of a conversation with Dr. Jerry Taylor. He is a professor at Abilene Christian University and the founding director of the Carl Spain Center. And I would ask you, if you haven't done this already, to go online and uh, look up the Carl Spain Center, get to know the work that they do. And uh, also that'll give you an opportunity to have more resources that are there and especially some of the great messages that Dr. Taylor has uh, made available to us. I also wanna say, if this is your first time joining us, this is what we're about. The Love First podcast is about catalyzing courageous conversations to revolutionize the way we love. The idea is that in the time we spend together, that your thoughts would be spurred, that your heart would be stirred, and that leaving this opportunity, you would think, I need to have conversations. There's someone I need to talk with. There's someone I need to listen to. So we're going to continue this in just a moment, but I want to say thank you so much for joining us this evening. Love first, I know. So, Jerry, thank you for being with us last week. Thank you for coming back this week. Well, I'm happy to be here with you again and uh, thoroughly enjoyed our time together on our last uh, visit. So, uh, grateful to be with you. Amen. Man, we had a lot of interaction. A lot of people were engaged. And I also noticed that several people were accessing the Carl Spain Center while we were online together and uh, I saw that people were even downloading some of the messages, so that made me very happy. And I wanna take one moment again and just remind people, uh, my wife and I believe in this work. We believe in the work that Dr. Taylor's doing. We believe in the work of the Spain Center, and we would ask you to join us in financially supporting that work. One of the things that's been stressed over the last several weeks is protesting is important. It does highlight and it states the real nature of things, the depth of the pain, the depth of the frustration, the depth of the grief. But beyond the protests, there has to be work. There's work that must be done. And there's no sense in reinventing the wheel every time this happens. There are organizations that are already doing this work and the Spain Center is one of them. And so we would ask you in joining us to financially support them. So let's get right to it, Jerry. We're going to uh, dive in. So last week, you left us off with the parable of the wheat and the tares. And so I'm going to read that. That's in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. It reads, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleepy. The enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. Well, when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did all these weeds come from? And he replied, the enemy did this. Well, the servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. I'd ask you to just kind of pick us back up in that parable and help us to apply what Jesus is teaching to our modern circumstances where we find ourselves seeking people to serve with, co-conspirators, allies, co-laborers, and sometimes we find it difficult to know who's really with us in the work. So can you help us a little bit in trying to navigate the uh, meaning of this parable? Yeah, I think the 
challenge that we face by living in this world uh, is trying to distinguish between good and evil. Uh, that is, I think, the greatest challenge that, that we face. Sometimes um, our tendency to want to eradicate evil is to tempt us to take matters into our own hands. And sometimes we look at the evil without identifying the source of the evil. Uh, there are a lot of things that happen in the world uh, to us and around us, uh, but sometimes we fail to take the time to trace uh, the breadcrumbs back to the loaf um, where uh, the real culprit uh, is hiding out mm. in the shadows. Um, as the parable points out, the enemy, the enemy of the owner of the harvest uh, intentionally planted the tear. And so we have to understand that there is a cosmic war that is taking place between God and Satan. And we have chosen sides. Yes. And so we have to remember that when evil shows up, it is not uh, so much uh, as something that is being done against us, though we are caught up in the fray. Mm. The real target of the evil actions uh, would be targeted towards the one that is involved in the struggle on a cosmic scale, and that would be the God uh, whom we have given our allegiance to. Mm. Mm. And as, as we try to identify uh, or try to distinguish between the wheat and the tare, if we do so without an awareness of God being the overseer and the owner of the harvest, uh, we may damage the good plant by trying to remove what we have identified as the bad plant. Yeah. And so I think the best thing that we can do is to uh, acknowledge the presence of evil, mm -hmm. uh, be truthful about that, but also recognize that if we try to remove evil by using evil, we only create more evil. And so uh, fighting fire with fire always uh, enhances the power of the chief of fire. And we know who that is. Uh, so Satan, he specializes in fire. And uh, so we have to make sure that uh, our actions are rooted and embedded uh, in the life and the being of God and trusting that God has enough wisdom to know how uh, to address uh, the presence of evil in the world. Uh, he was doing that before we ever showed up. And I think he has the, the wisdom and the capacity uh, to continue to address that. It's just yes. we, can't, we can't push him out of the way Amen. and do his work for him. We have to be present that he can do his work and do it through us with our understanding that it is God who is actually doing, doing the work and giving us the wisdom to know how to wisely walk in the world, uh, in the midst of evil, in the midst of bad things happening, uh, but still uh, recognizing that God is in control of this whole process. Wow. Well, let's tease that out a little bit. One of the things you shared with us last week that you kind of left us hanging on, as you said, the tendency is for us to imagine that we're pure wheat, right? Uh, and everybody else is the tear or whoever we identify, right? right? You said that the truth is that we might look inside and discover that there's wheat and tares, good seed and weeds within our own lives. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think what the saints teach us is that the closer we grow to God, the more we become aware of our own sinfulness. A saint is not a person who is sinless. A saint is a person who has come to grips with his or her own sinfulness. And so the first place to do uh, the work of identifying the wheat and the tear 
is in one's own heart. Mm. Um, the, the, the thing that contributes to self-righteousness is the flawed belief that I am all right, that everything about me is right, that every belief, every position that I hold is right, uh, and there is no possibility of me holding any positions that are wrong. Uh, but we are complicated beings. Uh, when, uh, when we became aware of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, we had the capacity to do both good and evil and to live in denial of the presence of evil in my own life is to make me even more susceptible uh, to being overtaken by evil. So uh, I think a, a robust prayer life is one that um, deals with the presence of evil in one's own heart. Yes. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew within me a right spirit. So the, the first uh, place, I think, to... Uh, acknowledge the existence of evil is within one's own heart. And that is the only way that I can even begin to respond with any level of compassion, any level of patience and understanding when I see evil existing in another human being is that I will have trained my response towards that person by having exercised uh, the response to evil in my own life. If I can be gracious towards my own imperfections, my own fallenness, uh, you know, my own sinfulness, then that prepares me to know how to wisely entreat that when I encounter the same presence in my, in my neighbor. Yes. You know, in the book, you've reminded me of something, Jerry. In the book, The Discipline of Grace, uh, there's a section that talks about learning how to preach the gospel to ourselves. Yes, yes. But, of course, if I actually need the gospel, then that means I'm sick. Yes. If, you know yes. what I mean? If I need forgiveness, I must be a sinner. Right. If I need the blood of Christ, it must mean that my life is insufficient in regard to righteousness. So preaching the gospel to ourselves is not just a feel-good moment where, hey, I'm okay. It's yeah. actually the reverse. It's a very challenging inner look into the interiority of my own self, yes. coming to grips with my sinfulness and the grace that overcomes my sinfulness can yes. reshape the way I begin to think of, of those around me. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's I'd what like to take this a step further then. Okay. In a recent TED Talk, uh, Baratundi Thurston, who, of course, has written a lot and uh, a very gifted writer, one of the books I, I read of his back in 2012 was How to Be Black. Mm. And because he's a, a very, very, very gifted communicator, highly educated and hilarious, he takes the first two chapters of that book and draws you in by the humor and yeah. then he appropriately hammers you for the rest of the book to help you transform. <laughs> but in this, in this TED Talk that has uh, gone viral recently, he speaks about the structures and the systems that are actually unjust, mm -hmm. that there are structures and systems that are unjust. And he speaks of the need to see the humanity mm -hmm of those that are targeted by those unjust systems mm -hmm. to see the humanity. Mm -hmm. So what, what is the connection between listening to Jesus about our own self, about the presence of wheat and tares, and then beginning to recognize and honor the humanity in those that are different from us? Yeah. We, we are in the world, but not of the world. The word world uh, in Greek is cosmos. It mm. means system. It means an arrangement, um, a power arrangement. And so people operate within those systems. Uh, 
institutions and organizations. Um, but we have to beware that uh, it is a possibility for those systems and institutions and organizations uh, to seek to shape us in their own image. And so there is a tireless effort uh, of those institutions to continue their existence by co-opting the inner space of our being that we have to now be concerned about uh, the image of the institution or the image of the organization, uh, which I would say is a form of idolatry. Mm. That when there is a system, when there is an institution uh, that would demand or expect uh, for us to place uh, their importance above the importance of God's uh, sanctioned existence in our lives, uh, then we're being invited to idolatry. Yeah. Yeah. And so as we operate in these systems and in these institutions, we have to understand that some people have actually accepted the bribe, mm. uh, that some people have actually um, received the invitation uh, to give up their inner space uh, to uh, becoming an occupied territory mm. by the institution uh, in which they operate. Mm -hmm. And it's very subtle. It's done in a very subtle way because we all need food, clothing, and shelter. And so whenever there is a monetary system that has been set up, uh, not only on a national scale, but on a global scale, uh, then there are certain things that you're expected to do in terms of employment in order to receive uh, the monetary benefit by the things that we have defined as the necessities of life. And so it's the age-old question that Jesus raised, which God will you choose? Mm. Be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or will it be Mammon? Yeah. And so most institutions, uh, they are set up uh, to make a profit, uh, to make money. Uh, and those of us who work in those systems are expected to do what uh, those systems have hired us to do in order to make money. Yes. Um, and then there comes a time when you have to make a decision as to uh, whether the institutional expectation collides with the kingdom expectation. Mm -hmm. And then you have to make a choice as to which one of these uh, systems you're going to obey, uh, you know, the system of the kingdom of God or the monetary system that has been set up as a means by which we earn uh, our money to provide for the things that we need in order to survive physically. Yes. So sometimes no. it's a matter of a choice between life and death. Are we, are we willing to forfeit uh, our, our standing within an institution that provides us with the money that we need to physically survive and suffer a spiritual death internally? Mm. Or are we willing to hold on to our spiritual life, trusting God to provide us with the, things that he knows we need and suffer a, a social death uh, within an organization or system. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's peel this back because I think some people listening to this podcast need to hear your personal journey with this because uh, you have, I've known you over 20 years. Mm -hmm. You have always centered the church at the front line mm -hmm. of the struggle for gospel justice mm -hmm. in the world. You've all entered the church in the struggle for genuine, authentic justice. Mm -hmm. uh, you serve a, a, as a professor in what we term, we term a, an institution of higher education. Mm -hmm. And in your case, uh, we call it a Christian institution of higher education. You also are the founding director of the Carl Spain Center. Mm -hmm. And so here are at least three, um, you know, institutions mm -hmm. through which you work and through which you see benefit for the cause of justice. But as you've mentioned, and I was taking note of the words you were using, the trap, yeah. the seduction, yes. right? Yes. So how is it, Jerry, 
that you personally are able to make peace with working in institutions like you do with, yeah, and you've always included a variety of voices. It's amazing to me. You've always been like that, that I've known you. And so how do you manage working in an institution that could be classified as having some wheat and having some tears, right? Yes. Functioning openly in these institutions when you realize that they have both strengths and shortcomings. So how do you navigate that? And what would you encourage our listeners to consider as they navigate it? Mm -hmm. I think having an, an understanding in terms of who we are working for. Mm. Uh, if we see the institution as our employer, then that means that the institution is in control of our work. Mm. We have to remind ourselves that God is uh, the owner of the vineyard. Uh, he is the one who assigns us our life's work. Um, and so he is the one who gives us our vocation, our calling to care about something that he deeply cares about. Um, to me, there is a difference between a vocation and an occupation. Mm -hmm. Occupation has to do with what people pay you for in order to occupy your time uh, to deliver a certain kind of product. That's an occupation. But a vocation is a calling that involves the voice of God. When God calls you to, to carry out a particular assignment. Uh, human beings have no control over that. Uh, man can control your occupation, but he cannot control your vocation. And so that is one thing I had to come to grips with early on in my life is that my vocational uh, calling uh, is something that God gave me. And I take that with me wherever I go. I had it before I came to Abilene. And if God so chooses to move me beyond Abilene, uh, I'm willing to uh, submit to his will. Mm. Uh, I started preaching for uh, a local church in Sulphur Springs, Texas, at the age of 22 while I was a student at Southwestern Christian College. And all of my adult life up until the age of 39 years old, I drew the false conclusion that it was the church that was taking care of my physical needs, uh, that it was the church that was employing me. Mm. And there were certain things that I had to um, say publicly and do publicly that sometimes uh, was done to please uh, the church. Yes. Because that's where I was, you know, receiving my income from. Yes. But God took me through a two to three year period uh, to where he developed in me a dissatisfaction that was so intense mm. that I could not arrest it. Wow. And led me to uh, resign from a very comfortable position uh, and to move to Atlanta to where I had no idea where... <laughs> We were going to get our income from. Yes. Uh, we had to totally trust God. And I think that's where he, he taught me the lesson that either you're going to depend upon the church or some other uh, human institution uh, to provide for your needs, or you're going to learn to trust me to take care of you. So when I met you, mm -hmm. you were in this transition time of leaning into vocation as the leading edge mm -hmm. and occupation as the trailing, mm -hmm. the trailing edge. Yes, exactly. Mm. Uh, because vocation, uh, vo care, calling to care, voice, uh, that has to do with something that is intrinsic. Mm instead of something to do uh, with that which is extrinsic. Yes. In other words, there is an internal motivation uh, to carry out a particular task, to fulfill a particular purpose and mission, 
And that comes from our creator. And no human power uh, can co-opt that unless we give that entity uh, the opportunity to co-opt that. Mm -hmm. That is something that is innate. It is something that comes from within. Uh, it is something that uh, motivates and inspires us to do something that the creator has designed uh, for us to do. Yes. Uh, and so with that uh, understanding of vocation, uh, it then demands that we live in harmony with the principles and the values that we have received uh, in our teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Am I really willing to live according to the truth of the gospel? Mm. Uh, or am I willing to compromise that and to pretend uh, that I am in agreement with maybe some teachings and positions and practices of the institution that will go against the gospel message? And sometimes it will get us into serious trouble when we choose to remain faithful to the gospel message, yes. uh, when it collides with the expectations of even a church, congregation, or institution of higher learning. Yes. And so uh, we have to really, really <laughs> uh, keep true to that, uh, yes. to that commitment, you know, to yes. the calling that God has placed upon our lives. So working in institutions, um, I think remembering why we are there, uh, my individual uh, vocation calls me to evolve, yeah. to grow, to become fully uh, what God intends for me to become right where I am. Mm. So he planted me uh, in Abilene. He planted me here at Abilene Christian University, uh, not so much to change uh, the institution, but to allow him to change me within. And as I evolve, yeah. I'm being true to who he has called me to be. I'm being true to the principles that I've come to understand as being core to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And simply all I'm doing is just being. Yes. And so as, as Hamlet says, the question is to be or not to be. And so if I choose to be what God has called me to be, to be who God has called me to be, that may clash with other expectations mm -hmm. of what others think I ought to be yes. uh, in order to fit into this category, uh, as opposed to being faithful to the category God has placed me in, in terms of his kingdom and his operative will in my life as it yes. unfolds. Well, let's let's continue this part of the conversation. Uh, what what we're thinking through is living in the world, but not of the world. Right. Holding tightly to vocation, loosely to occupation. Right. Yes. Yes. And you've emphasized kind of this inner journey, this this journey of growth. Mm -hmm. um, so I've chosen a couple of of examples for us to also think through. Uh, the first one, I remember when you and I were children mm -hmm. uh, in elementary school, the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. Uh -huh. And I don't know what everyone remembers about those Olympics, but I'll tell you probably the most memorable part is when uh, Tommy Smith of course, mm -hmm. and his teammate, Juan Carlos, and then also the athlete uh, from Australia, because although he did not raise his hand, he was wearing the human rights patch. He was very much a part of their protest. But these young men, after the 220 uh, sprint, uh, on the uh, platform to receive their uh, awards, gold, silver, and bronze, then had the famous protest of the hands lifted in the air. Uh, my great joy was here a few years ago, one of our elders and I had the opportunity to have lunch together with Tommy Smith. Mm. And I was so excited to meet him and to hear the story. And so he came in 
And bear in mind, in his 70s, he is still an outstanding, outstanding physical condition. Uh, he certainly still looks like the sprinter that he was. And when he sat down and we began to ask him, he began to share with us this testimony. He said, I thought to myself, God is giving me this opportunity. Mm. He said, I prayed for over two months mm. to prepare for this moment. Yeah. He said, we already knew that there was that that the Olympics were uh, 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 filled with racism. Mm -hmm. This was not new. We knew that. Mm -hmm. And he said, and people had a lot of stories. He said, some people wondered why I had a glove on one hand and Juan Carlos had a glove on the other hand. He said, it's no mystery. He forgot his gloves. And so we shared mine. <laughs> he said, you may have noticed that we took our shoes off. You may have noticed that we wore a necklace of beads. All of these represented the oppressed and the poor around the world, yeah. not just our yeah. nation. And so I thought to myself, from the outside, that event was thought of institutionally one way. Yeah. Yeah. But the person that engaged in it, had gone into the interior of his soul, That's right. asked God for guidance, yes. asked God to show him his vocation. Yes. In this case, I guess we would call the running the occupation and then the, the soul work, the vocation, and he chose right. to do it. Mm -hmm. In our current time, there has been a tremendous amount of disagreement concerning Colin Kaepernick, Mm -hmm. And his decision to use his occupation as a place to express his vocation. Mm -hmm. And over the last several years, there has been tremendous conflict around this. And part of it has centered in, he just did it in the wrong place. He mm -hmm. should not have done it at his place of occupation. Mm -hmm. uh, he was hired by the NFL. They are an income-producing entity, so he should have honored his employers mm -hmm. and not risked their financial outcome to mm -hmm. make his protest. Now, personally, I would see what Tommy Smith and the others did and what Colin Kaepernick did I would see them as the same. I would see them as people. We know that Colin Kaepernick is deeply devoted to his Christian faith. And so I would see this as two people who did interior work and decided to live out their vocation in the midst of their occupation. But both of them experienced tremendous backlash. So what would you suggest for the interior work of the soul, not just to live out your vocation, but be, to be prepared for the backlash. Yeah. I think um, you have to choose between the inner voice and the outer voice. And the inner voice, uh, we are trained to hear that more clearly uh, as we listen to the voice of Jesus uh, as he is our elder brother. Uh, and who serves as the doorway into the very being of God. He is our supreme example of one who listened to the voice of, of the Father uh, in the midst of a world that was filled with so many other voices. And one of those voices he encountered in the wilderness uh, in Matthew 4, where he was tempted, he was offered everything uh, that a human being could be offered uh, to appeal to the ego, uh, to appeal to the flesh, uh, the desire for fame and glory. All of that was offered to him, uh, but it was another voice uh, that was doing the offering. But Jesus had trained his heart, his mind, his soul, his spirit to be in sync with that eternal voice of the Father. And so uh, those two voices will clash. One is the voice of, of, of God. The other one is the voice of that which is anti-God. Yes. And we cannot 
house both of those voices. Mm. We have to choose between uh, the voice of God and the voice that is operative in the world. Mm. And so uh, whenever we are pushed or urged uh, to take a particular stance from that inner uh, space that is occupied by God and his word, uh, then we have to count up the cost because it is a costly uh, exercise. It, it, it indeed is. Uh, you have to be willing uh, to endure the harshest kind of torture, mm. uh, the harshest kind of treatment. Mm. Uh, you have to be willing to undergo uh, misrepresentation, malignment, uh, all of those uh, negative things that can happen to you uh, as a result of you being true to the voice of God as he speaks through Jesus and the Holy Spirit that abide within us. Yeah. Uh, but not to do that, not to be faithful to the voice of God, to escape harm or rejection, uh, is to then surrender your inner being to the most horrible state of existence possible. Uh, because when we open ourselves up to the voice of God, uh, to the voice of the world, mm. and we welcome the world in, that's when God packs his bags and he leaves. Yeah. He will not abide in that kind of space uh, when we give our allegiance to an external voice, whether that's in the form of symbols or in the, in, in the form of expectations from others outside of us, whether that is national or local or religious, um, that is a direct uh, confrontation to God's supreme authority in our lives. And we have to make sure that we, we choose his voice and be willing to pay the consequences. And there will be, yes, there will yes. be consequences. Well, how do you feel about taking on just a couple of controversial subjects? <laughs> okay, let's, let's try this, okay? okay? So I've created uh, a spectrum of responses. And I know this isn't perfect, okay? But I've created a, a spectrum of responses. So let's consider uh, how some people looked at uh, Tommy's, you know, and Juan and Peter, the three in 1968. Mm -hmm. And then think about how some look at Colin Kaepernick today, how yeah. some folks look at protesters, uh, how some folks look at those who would like to have uh, monuments either reconsidered, replaced, or removed, right? Mm -hmm. So I thought about this spectrum of responses, Jerry. So what we see from some is outright condemnation that what that everything that tommy and the other two athletes in 1968 did is it was just categorically wrong or whatever colin kaepernick did he's almost like um a demon he's almost demonized by by this like like he is a complete uh, uh, pariah, you know, uh, in the, in the words maybe, uh, that Dr. Richard Beck uses unclean. He became unclean to our, our system. Uh, so there's condemnation. Uh, all the protesters are kind of lumped into a, they're condemned. Uh, anyone that thinks that monuments should be torn down, removed, replaced, whatever, there's like condemnation. So that's the far end, just a hard line condemnation. Mm -hmm. But then I've noticed if you come on the spectrum a little bit, we would have condescension mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to where we are not condemning, but we don't take the people seriously. Mm -hmm. That it's kind of a paternalistic condescending, you know, they're there, you know, they'll get over it you know, kind of a condescension. Then I noticed criticism, like a critique of whatever they're doing. It's always a critique. There's always a, yeah, but, and then the critique ensues. I've noticed toleration. It's almost a detente. Don't, 
Don't talk about it. Don't bring it up. We will put up with those people. We'll put up with them, you know, with, with the other. Then I've noticed, and this is something that uh, I, I, we talked about a little bit about last week. I've noticed a growing willingness to interactively listen. Mm-hmm. That's been interesting in this cycle of our nation's uh, tortured history with the subjects of racism and white supremacy and oppression. I've noticed more interactive listening. And if we keep going to the better end of the spectrum, I see empathy, compassion, and then I'm noticing engagement and Mm co-laboring. People willing to literally engage and take up the cause. So on the one end, just condemnation. On the other end, an engagement and a willingness to stand with, take up the cause and co-labor with. But in the middle, from condescension, condescension to compassion, we're all over the map. And it would seem to me that as believers, if we were to look on the 1968 Olympics, uh, Olympic uh, athletes just with a heart of compassion, it would shift the way we interact with them. If we would look at Colin Kaepernick with a heart of compassion, if we would look at the protesters with a heart of compassion, if we would look at those who are passionately begging for some of these monuments to be removed from their public existence, if we looked on them with compassion, it seems like, especially as Christians, that our posture would be different and that people would experience us in a more productive way. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I think it's important for my white brothers and sisters to understand what we have experienced as a people in this country since 1619. Yes. The first African brought here. And those who came after, after that first African We have been dehumanized. We have been tortured, brutalized, cut off from our elders. Our souls have been ripped to shreds. Um, We were treated worse than animals. Um, For 400 years, we have endured this kind of abuse, a civil war fought on this soil to give us something that God had already given to us, but this country had taken from us. And then to see all of those uh, black bodies having to suffer, hanging on, tree limbs in the backwoods of Mississippi, bodies thrown into rivers that we don't even know about today, and to have the dogs unleashed on us in Birmingham. All of, all of this dehumanizing uh, treatment. Yes. And so all we are saying is that um, just admit. Yes that uh, the treatment that we've we've received since our first arrival here has been ungodly, it has been unchristian, it has been wicked, it has been evil. And so then to put up statues in memory of the very people who sought to continue the dehumanizing treatment of African-Americans and to expect us to um, not be mentally and psychologically traumatized by that. That is very unreasonable. That's right. Uh, to have our babies to go into schools that are named after generals and military leaders that fought to keep African-Americans enslaved. Yes. That is psychological trauma. Yes. Uh, and then to criticize uh, Kaepernick uh, for 
disrespecting the American flag while we allow people to wave the Confederate flag that is antithetical to the, the American flag, I think the Confederate flag is the, the greatest symbol of disrespect to the American flag. Mm-hmm. It represents a part of this country that, that rose up to overthrow the federal government of this country. Yes. And yet there is no outcry mm. when that flag is waved in the face of the American flag. Yep. Yep. And so, um, you know, it, it's just painful yes. uh, when people get so angry yes. at African Americans who dare to say that uh, we have been psychologically abused. Yes. We have been emotionally traumatized. And just because there was a declaration to the end of slavery does not mean that we don't live with the ghost of slavery every day of our lives. The residuals of slavery, they live on in us, even in our children and our children's children. Yes. And so this, I think, uh, is one consideration that our white brothers and sisters can give uh, to those of us who... um, who are given creative ways to say that we are not for the continued oppression of African-American people in this country. It is not being done to be ugly or disrespectful uh, to anybody, uh, but it is being done to be respectful to the humanity that God has assigned to us as black human beings that live in a majority white country. Yes. And so that's what I would, I would say in response to that, Don. And thank you, Jerry. You know, you have been gifted by God to help, in a very, very few words, cover this span of experience, right? And for us to begin to wrap our minds around the truth of that experience, um, when we, you mentioned the uh, war fought, the Civil War fought to specifically decide if the nation that occupies this soil would continue the legal practice of human trafficking. Yes. And I think part of what Americans find it difficult, white Americans particularly, um, find it difficult to accept is kind of the darkness of that history when Britain that we had broken from because we said they were tyrannical, right? right. right? Mm-hmm. And we, we said no more, mm-hmm. that over three decades before our civil war, they had legally ended their participation in the slave trade. And yet we broke from them because of the tyranny and we were practicing tyranny within our own house. Yes. And then as uh, in a Blackman's book, Slavery by Another Name, mm-hmm. he chronicles convict leasing yes. Yes. from the end of Reconstruction all the way up into the middle of the 20th century. So when I hear uh, some of my uh, friends and and the people in our city talk about these issues as if they are long ago, a history that was settled uh, in a a time far away, the Mm -hmm. truth is, is that these things are present among us because there is a continuing issue that we have been unwilling to deal with. The, the, the issue mutates yeah. in how it shows itself. That's right. But we have been unwilling to own the truth mm-hmm. that this nation, through an assumed white supremacy, yeah. to, to invest in its own self-interest, looted the South African continent, sub-Saharan continent, looted that continent of millions of people that came to 
all up and down the Western Hemisphere yeah. to fill in our self-interest with free labor. Yes. Yes. And then we created policies to protect that evil practice and then racism to justify the policies to protect the evil practice. That's right. We will not fully address racism until we address the underlying truth yes. that we lived in direct antithesis yes. to the gospel of Jesus Christ to yes. build such a system and right. only the gospel of Jesus Christ can heal us from the sinfulness of that system. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is God a God of freedom? Mm. And I think that's the story of the Exodus. That God is a God of freedom. Yes. And can Christians truly be Christians if they are anti-freedom and anti-liberty for any segment of the human population? Uh, for me to be uh, just for freedom for myself and for those who look like me uh, is to practice what I would call a distorted form of freedom. It is not, it is not a full freedom. Yeah. And so um, when people uh, honor and show reverence to symbols that sought to keep uh, that sought to keep uh, African-Americans locked in slavery and denied freedom is to pay homage to symbols that were, uh, that represent something that was anti-gospel, yeah. anti-God. Uh, if Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, uh, then how is it that we can uh, show reverence to those individuals that sought to keep sought to keep us in bondage to that sought to deny us the freedom that God gave to us uh, in our souls and our spirits. Yes, and I, I think that's 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 what we have to ask ourselves going forward. Um, are we willing to buy into the doctrine of white supremacy? that would say that white people need to be only concerned about the freedom of white people Yeah, to yeah. Uh, keep others uh, in an unfreed state yeah. in order to protect that white freedom. Yeah. Where we have the, the broadness of heart and spirit to allow God's love for freedom to express itself through us. That would, that would be comprehensive for everybody. It's, Free. It's enough freedom to go around for everybody. <laughs> and I think that's all we're saying. <laughs> you know, uh, as Martin King would say, let freedom ring. Yes. It's enough freedom for everybody. Yes. Yes. And we do damage to God's own nature, to God's own intention when we seek to have freedom just for our kind. Yes. And to deny freedom to those who are, who are most different. Uh, from ourselves. Yes. And I think something that I've been just in my own spirit thinking through, Jerry, I can remember the surprise, astounding surprise, when the Berlin Wall came down. Yes. And that it, we, we have to remember it was the German people yeah. who were tearing down a wall yeah. that represented something that they had that they no longer believed right so uh, it represented a way they didn't want to live anymore yes. so rather than leaving the wall there so that somehow they could learn the history of that wall they knew that the wall continued to not only traumatize yeah. but the wall was a symbol of something that they believed was wrong and should not be continued Mm -hmm. And we, we cheered them tearing down that wall. That's right. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, uh, people our age and older with great shock watched as the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm -hmm. And that seemed uh, unthinkable in a lot of ways. Yeah. But as we begin to watch 
sometimes in the daylight and sometimes in spotlights at night across the former Soviet Union, people pulling down statues of yeah. Stalin. And where, uh, you know, our uh, son, uh, Aaron and his wife, and of course, DJ Wells and, and yeah. his wife, they were uh, uh, servants of the Lord in Yekaterinburg. And not far from Yekaterinburg, uh, to put this for our listeners, Yekaterinburg is about a thousand miles east of Moscow. It is probably the fourth largest city in uh, 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 Russia. But outside of that city, is a massive graveyard mm. that was a remembrance, a painful remembrance of Stalin's pogroms that wow. killed millions, mm. millions of citizens in the Soviet Empire or the Soviet Union. And so we should remember again that mm. it was the Russian people that pulled down those statues. That's right. That's right. It wasn't people from the outside. It mm. wasn't European people. It wasn't people from China. It wasn't people from the United States that went into their country and pulled down the statues of Stalin. It was actually the Russian people. And we need to remember that there was a history behind that. Yes. There was a hurt. There was an unresolved grief That's right. of the countless ancestors, mm -hmm. millions that had been murdered at his command. Mm -hmm. And then for us to cheer with them as yes. those statues were pulled down, I think some others might look at us and say, so help us, help us see this among you. Mm -hmm. When you're making this change, when your nation is repenting of yes. the dehumanizing ways that it has treated people that it brought here as slaves, yes. and now your nation is reckoning with that. Come on, America. We want to see you as a light of freedom. Come on, America. Lift Lady Liberty's torch high. Come on, America. Be a hope yeah. and let us see that you too would join us yeah. Yeah. in tearing down these traumatizing aspects of a history that we don't believe was right. That's exactly true. And I wonder if there are any statues of Saddam Hussein left in Iraq. That's a good point. And how did we respond when we saw the Iraqi people pulling down that statue? We knew yeah. what he represented back then. And we were celebrating freedom for the Iraqi people when they were liberated mm -hmm. uh, from his rule and his reign. Yeah. How many statues in Germany do they have of Adolf Hitler? And so we understand what statues and symbols represent. Yes, we do. And so, um, you know, individuals that are celebrated in this country uh, for having denied a certain segment of this country their freedom 400 years. Yes. And then to celebrate those individuals as heroes, uh, that is a glaring contradiction. Yes. And so, yes. Uh, you know, if, if we celebrate pulling down of Saddam Hussein's statue and, you know, things like that. Uh, we, we need to do some serious thinking about the things that we uh, celebrate as being worthy of our adoration. Because yeah. uh, yeah. I know as an African-American, um, I just have no affection uh, for the stature of human beings that would represent the denial of freedom for anybody. Yes. Anybody. Because that, to me, that is totally antithetical to uh, the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is intended to give freedom to everybody. Yes. Yeah. So. Amen. Oh, Jerry, I have a feeling that we may have succeeded this evening in catalyzing some courageous conversation. I think so. <laughs> oh, Jerry. Oh, I love you, brother. And I, I just, my heart is just so full every time I get to be with you, hear your voice. And it means so much to me that our listeners are getting to uh, drink from the well that God has uh, welled up inside you. Let's go ahead and close our time together with uh, a, a, a comparison of scripture. Okay. Jesus uh, talked to us about the reality that uprooting the tares uh, in the midst of the growing process is not something we will successfully do. Only God 
can guide that. Only the Holy Spirit uh, can guide that. But that's in Matthew 13. But in Matthew 12, when Matthew is reflecting on his experience with Jesus, he says in Matthew 12, verse 17, uh, about Jesus's way, his healing, the way he interacted with everyone, including Matthew himself, right? Mm. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And he quotes from chapter 43 of Isaiah, here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out until he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations, the ethnicities will put their hope. And when we read that text, one of the confusing things is we know that Jesus did cry out, John chapter 7. He did cry out in the streets. Uh, He did quarrel, Matthew 23, with the Pharisees uh, over and over, John chapter 8. Quite a discussion there with the Pharisees, right? Where they end up cussing him out in their first century vernacular. Uh, He did quarrel when he flipped over the tables in the temple. Mm -hmm. So whatever this text means about the reality that there will be strong discussions and that there will be confrontations, at the same time we read in the middle of it that he's not going to stop working until the nations can put their hope in the justice that he proclaims, and along the way he's not going to snap bent reeds in half and break them. He's not going to look a candle that's barely flickering and just snuff it out. Can you speak to what it means for you to follow Jesus in the work that you do when you come across bent reeds and smoldering wicks in this uh, this struggle for justice? Mm -hmm. I think for me, the first thing that I have to do uh, continually is to remember and be mindful of my temporary status Mm. in this life. Uh, This is not my final destination. I have been given just a brief moment to be here uh, for just a little while, uh, because as a human being, we are nothing but a breath, uh, and then we're gone. Uh, So as I live in this world uh, under the lordship of the Christ, of the Bible that we know, I cannot allow my soul to become attached uh, to the activity that I engage in uh, because the activity is uh, the exercise of energy towards a particular task in this life that is temporary. That uh, what I do in the space of, even if it's a hundred years, it is but just a small grain of sand uh, in the massive vastness of God's own history with the world and uh, the salvation process that he's working out for the entire planet. And so I cannot become so arrogant and egotistical that I think that God's entire uh, uh, plan for this world rests on my human shoulders. Uh, I am just a man, uh, and that's all that I want to ever try to be, uh, you know, as a servant of of our God, uh, realizing that I'm not a God. Mm-hmm. and that I don't have the divine wisdom to, um, to determine who gets to live and who gets to die. And so, uh, but as I live here and uh, wanting to be used of him while I'm here, I cannot get attached to my role. I cannot get attached to even God's will 
I have to be attached to God himself. And when I do that, I realize uh, that whatever he chooses to do through me, uh, that is his work flowing through me into the concrete uh, historical context of this world. And when he is done using me, uh, you know, then he takes me back uh, unto himself. Mm -hmm. uh, but if I ever get it twisted in thinking that I got to do this, that I'm doing this, um, then that's when we become blinded by rage, mm -hmm. uh, blinded by anger, uh, filled with resentment. And that's the surest way uh, to kill God's activity in one's own life. Uh, is to become so attached to outcomes uh, that uh, we push God out of the picture and forget uh, that this is a temporary assignment. What we call life on this planet is a temporary assignment, uh, and we have to do it with the awareness that uh, our time here will end. And uh, when it comes time to take our last breath, hopefully we can do so knowing uh, that the best thing that we have done was to have been available for God to do his own thing through us. Uh, uh, and nothing that we can take credit for. It is what God chose to do, uh, to do through us. And he had that assignment for us before we were, before we got here. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's to get out of his way and let God do what he does. And if it involves us even suffering. Yes or dying in the process, God is still God regardless. And so that, that would be my response uh, to that, Don, is uh, you know, just living in a way that we don't uh, you know, get it distorted and thinking that uh, this is something that we're doing. Yeah, amen, amen. Well, brother, I wanna thank you so much for who you are, and for the life that you live in your community and with your family, and of course, nationally and internationally. I also want to thank you for the work that you're doing at ACU and uh, in the church uh, there and abroad, and especially in the Spain Center. And once again, I just want to ask our listeners to get online, look up the Carl Spain Center at Abilene Christian University, and go avail yourself of these fantastic resources and join the work get involved. It might be a baby step, but you know, uh, baby step means you're walking at least. So uh, uh, let's, let's get it rolling. Jerry, again, thank you so much for joining us on the Love First podcast. And my prayer is that uh, in the near future, you will join us again for another great conversation. Thank you, Don. I appreciate it and enjoyed uh, spending this time with you and uh, with the people that are watching. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jerry. All right. All right. Love first, I